Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name's not Steve Clark. You may have gathered for the regular Brooklyn's attendees. Steve's not here tonight. He's had an operation today. Uh, so I'm sure we all wish him well for his recovery, but he really did want to be here for this very special occasion tonight. Uh, 50th anniversary of the Italian job. Can you believe it? 50 years. Mm, it is a special night. Uh, in 2017, this film was voted the greatest British film ever made. And we're really pleased tonight that we've got several people here that did actually make that film. And we've got a person who wrote a very good book about it. And the book is available at the back, as you may have seen already. And afterwards, there will be a signing session as well with some of the, the people involved. Now, Matthew Field is the man who wrote that book. And he is over to my right. So I'm going to invite him to the stage. And he will introduce our guest for tonight. So, Matthew, please come forward. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, thank you for inviting us here to Brooklands to um, talk about the 50th anniversary of the Italian job. Um, it's more than just a film for me. I mean, I don't know how many, who, how many people in this room, is it your favourite movie? Okay. Um, well, it was the first film I ever saw. Um, I saw it sometime in 1985 when I was about four years old. Um, my dad showed me the Mini Cooper car chase, um, and I've been, uh, I've been hooked on it ever since. Um, I know it's always been popular amongst motoring enthusiasts, but it wasn't when it came out in 1969. And it wasn't really until the mid-90s, and after the arrival of Britpop, did it become this absolute classic. So over, over the past two years, I've been researching this book on the movie, which is available here tonight. Some of those people who contributed to it have agreed to come along and talk to us about it, and about their memories of Just invite them to the stage. First of all, we've got Michael D. of the film. If you'd like to come to the stage. Thank you. Watch that step there. You go round to the far, the far seat round there. Okay. Michael's one of the most successful uh, movie producers of his generation, um, and nearly all of his films have attracted avid cult followings. He had steered the, to the screen such classics as Blade Runner, which was Ridley Scott's uh, sci-fi uh, classic, and The Deer Hunter, which won him an Academy Award. He also worked with Troy Kennedy Martin and Peter Collinson to steer that comedy caper to the screen, and I think Michael would agree it's the film that he's most proud of, even though The Deer Hunter won in the Oscar. The next person I'd like to welcome to the stage is David Salamone. So, David found himself in a rather unusual position. He served a dual purpose on the film. Not only did he source all of the cars that you see on screen, from the Aston Martin DB4, the E-Type Jaguars. He was even tasked with finding the coach and also prepping all of the minis ready for filming. But also, 
Michael then asked him if he'd like to play the driver of the Red Mini in the film. So when you see all those shots of Michael Caine being driven, it's David driving Michael. Our next guest is Hazel Collinson. Would you like to come through, Hazel? So Hazel was a, a star on the stage in Ireland when she met her future husband, Peter Collinson, who later, as you all know, went on to direct the Italian job. Hazel also has a cameo role in the film. Hazel, what did you do in the film? You played? I played a gangster's mall. And we're going to come to that story later on in the evening. Okay? Um, sadly, Peter died before the movie became a cult classic. But Hazel and the Collinson family have kept his spirit alive by celebrating the film for which he will always be remembered. So just before I start to interview these guys about the film, I also would like to let you know, in the, in the audience we have John Morris, uh, who played Dave, one of the gang members in the film. asking John a couple of questions throughout the evening. We also have David Wynne-Jones with us, who was the second assistant camera operator. Now, what makes this film extra special is we also have the families of Peter. We have his two sons, Tara and Shane, with us in the audience. And we also have the daughter of the writer, Troy Kennedy-Martin, Sophie, and Troy's grandson, Tom. So please welcome them too. that these guys went to Turin for the summer to make the Italian job. And there they all are on the steps of the Villa della Regina. And we can see Michael Dini Michael there on the, uh, on the right. Whereabouts are you, you David? You're here. In a little red suit. Yeah. Yeah, you can't miss me. And, and John, John Morris. Whereabouts are you on there, John? On the steps, on the left side. There we go, just there, the back there. So, first of all, I have to ask you, when you made this movie, I'm going to start with you, Michael. Did you have any idea that you'd be talking about it 50 years later? No. <laughs> <laughs> really not. Um, the picture didn't really work initially. It, it, we thought it was, well, we now call it sort of first Brexit film ever, but we thought it was, <laughs> thought it was, it was good fun. But uh, in America, I made the picture for an American company, Paramount, it did nothing. And it was so disappointing. We were very upset, but we licked our wounds and waited about 30 years or something. And then <laughs> suddenly it started to be a good film, which was very happy making. And, and Hazel, I shall ask you, you know, you know, sadly, you know, we don't have Troy and, and Peter with us this evening. But what does it mean in the Collinson family, this movie, 50 years later? Well, Peter died when the two boys were very, very young. And it was one of the movies that they were really able to watch all the time because it's fun and it's a children's movie. Anybody can watch it. So they've always watched it. And I would talk about their dad to them and the things that happened through our lives together. And in a way, it kind of brought him back in a little way to them. It made him alive to them both. And that was nice because they were without him most of their lives. 
Now, Michael, I want to come to you because there you are there with your cast assembled. With Tony Beckley on the left, Noel Coward and Michael Caine. So tell me, how did you become involved with this, this film? Because you were a, a very successful independent producer at the time. You just made Robbery with Stanley Baker. Um, so what was it that attracted you to this project? The fact that there was a, a very tight script already written, uh, intimation of possibly Michael Caine being willing to do it, and Paramount offering to pay for it. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> That's not the like. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, Hazel, I have to ask you, you know, Peter was a, a bit of an enigma. I mean, you, you've contributed to the book quite, quite heavily, told some fantastic stories. So I hope that we've got, you know, we've got his spirit alive in the book. Oh, I think you have. Yes. Um, so tell us about him, because he was a bit, of a, a bit of a wild character, wasn't he? Now, I've got a picture of him here on the screen with his white Rolls Royce. Yes. Now, you know which story I'm going to ask you I to do, tell, I don't do, you? I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> he had just got the white Rolls Royce, which as far as he was concerned, he was in his late 60s, 20s. This was it. He'd made it, the white Rolls Royce. <coughs> and we were coming home. We lived in Shepparton at the time, and we were coming home from a dinner party in London. And... Uh, <coughs> We were driving nicely, and he suddenly said to me, you don't know how lucky you are, a little woman from Ireland, and here you have a director driving you home in a white Rolls Royce to your door. And I very foolishly said, well, actually, you don't bring me to my door, you just drive me to the edge of the lawn. And with that, he drove over the lawn, through the French windows, and parked in the front room. <laughs> Michael, you said that, you know, Troy's script came with the possibility of um, Michael Caine attached. Um, tell us, you were very concerned, weren't you, that you didn't want to remake one of his most recent pictures. So tell us about the, the, the casting that you wanted, to, you wanted to support him. Ah, well, as Alfred Hitchcock said, the most important factor for a successful film is the cast. And balancing cast is very tricky. Um, usually it comes down to will the man and the woman click but we didn't have that situation here we had a few men and a lot of motor cars so there wasn't so much clicking necessary there um, <coughs> the vital thing was that Michael's um, recent history had been um, I can't even remember he's done Alfie Alfie, Alfie yes yeah. that's alright um, but uh, I, I just thought we needed to add some gravitas to the thing, and that was why when the name of Noel Coward came up, it was a marvellous counterperson. Um, it, the billing automatically became much more interesting with the picture was starring Michael Caine, and who? It was interesting. But th th those were the sort of linchpins. Um, but in the end, it came down to wanting to make um, a much gentler and more amusing in some ways film than Troy had written. Troy, Troy had written a very tight, very very good screenplay. Um, it seemed to me that the film could be that, exactly that, but with a lot of humour added to it. And that happened by more casting, by bringing in Fred Emney, Benny Hill, uh, Irene Handel, I mean, those people just to, can walk on the screen and be funny. 
And if you want to make a lighter film, you can't get anybody lighter than that. And as a comp uh, combined group, they were marvellous. Um, can I have the roving mic, if that's okay? So I just want to bring John Morris in here. Um, you can see John just there on the, on the left on location with Frank Jarvis and uh, Barry Cox, who drove the white mini in the film. Just while we're staying uh, with Michael Caine, um, Johnny, can you just tell us about your, your work with Michael Caine? Because you knew him um, before the Italian job. And just tell us how you ended up in the film. His first film was The Ipcrest File, where he was the main star in it. And I did Elfie, um, Billion Dollar Brain, Funeral in Berlin, um, Get Carter. And I was with him for 10 years. And you, didn't, you, you did all sorts with him, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I did, your st role? did his stunts, most of his stunts, stunt arranging, um, and his minder. <laughs> and, and, and also, you ended up playing Dave in the movie as well? Played Dave in the movie, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Hazel, I would like to ask you um, about Noel Coward while we're on the subject of casting, because Peter had. Um, an existing, you know, relationship with Noel Coward. I wondered if you could tell us about that. Yes. Um, Peter's mother and father, she was an actress and his father was a musician and the marriage didn't work and they parted and unfortunately neither of them wanted Peter so they put him in the actor's orphanage when he was about five or six and he was there and didn't see either of them until he was 14. And then at 14, that's when you had to leave the orphanage in those days. And every year, the orphanage had a different actor or writer in charge, making sure the children were all right. And the last year of Peter's life, it was Noel Coward. And Noel said in one of his books that he could remember this little blonde boy sitting in the window, having been told that his dad was finally going to visit him. And he watched his father come up the pathway to the orphanage. And then about two minutes later, watched his dad walk away. And it turned out that the mother had said the father was never to see him. So that was all Peter saw of his dad. And he was very, very upset. And Noel Coward always said, what parents can do to their children is appalling. But he took him under his wing and he became a sort of a surrogate godfather to him. And when it was time for Peter to leave, he got him a job in the Chiswick Empire as a lime boy and he found digs for Peter to go into and made sure he was all right. So you can imagine how absolutely thrilled Peter was that he would have the chance to actually work with the master in the Italian job. He was so excited about it. And when he told Noel that I'm the little blonde boy that you were so kind to, it was a great moment. And that's what his connection was with Noel. Wonderful. And, that, and we've, there's, there's, we're going into lots more detail about in the book, and we've got some wonderful pictures yes. from, your, from your family collection yes. of, um, of uh, Peter with, um, with Noel. Um, David, I want to bring you in here. There you are there, um, playing Dominic. Um, tell us, you'd worked with Michael, as I said at the beginning, on, on, on robbery. Um, tell us about how you became involved in this film and what your actual role was. <laughs> it's a good question, but originally I thought I was going to be a stunt driver. <laughs> 
that actually didn't come to play. I got all the cars for the film, and uh, as we, I was already on contract when they found Remy Julian, I got offered the acting role, <laughs> which is my one and only acting role with one line 50 years ago. Uh, and as you, as you can see, I went on, it was to a big career in acting. Well, we come to the, sorry to go back there, to the Lamborghini Mura. Yes. Now, when we were actually researching the book, David and I were invited to Lamborghini because I'm sure a lot of you, um, um, you know, who are interested in cars know that very recently the Lamborghini Mura was discovered, the one that was actually used in the film. David, I wonder if you could just tell us the story of the Lamborghini Mura because it's remained a bit of a mystery, hasn't it, since the filming? Yes, I mean, I first saw the car about five years ago in Paris and I wasn't totally convinced it was the car. But when we went to Italy and met the chap who actually drove it from the factory and for the film up to, up to Aosta, and he told us the whole story of how originally they, the first thing was, was found was the wreck. Which is the one we can see here in the photograph. That one, yeah. yes, that one. <laughs> and then a car needed to be sourced because the Mura was very new at the time. And so there were a lot of money and it was very new and they decided to take one off the production line. And in fact, the car that they took was obviously a customer's car which had white leather seats, white leather interior. So they put black seats in it quickly. The guy drove it up to Aosta. I believe he did about 1,200 kilometers in two days. In someone's car. In, in this car, <laughs> in the movie. And then when it was returned to the factory, the white seats were put back in. I think it was probably what we call in the trade, clocked. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> delivered to the owner who'd ordered it in the first place. And that's why it's uh, yes. now worth a lot of money. Yes, you should have kept it. <laughs> yes. Now, I'd like to, if I could have the roving mic, if I may, because I want to ask um, David Wynne-Jones a question here. Because David was on the second unit in the camera department and was, um, was involved in shooting this scene. David, could you just tell us your memories? Because this is your photograph, isn't it, here, that you took? Yes, it is mine, yeah. So what are your memories of filming this scene? Uh, well, if you look at this picture, and look at, look at that we got wood. Look, look at how, how, you know, nowadays they, are, they have fabulous rigs that just clip on the cars and do everything. But those were just planks of wood tied on with a wooden tripod. <laughs> what, did, what, did the, what was the, the, the chap from Lamborghini thinking when he saw you? putting his cameras on like this. <laughs> I got on with, with him very well, actually. I used to drive back to the hotel with him every night. And you were, you were actually... Tell us about where you were, David. Well, as you can see here, there are two cameras, and there's a camera inside as well. So I was the smallest. So I was put into the well of the car with three buttons. Until, and I was told by Peter when to turn it off. When to turn it off. And the way it was interesting, you were telling me um, in the book about how you how you shot it because if you know you, we just ran the sequence there, you saw it. You see the car glide around the bends. Tell us how you actually you, you did it because you were telling me about the, the, the length of film, etc. In terms of you would let, let the, the cameras run and just see what happened. Well, yeah, I mean, it was we worked out where we were going to film, obviously different places, 
and uh, we, that was a starting point. And we knew that there was four minutes of film on the camera, so we knew how f you know how long it would take basically. And I had to tell uh, Peter then when we ran out and where we were. So now we come to the the Aston Martin DB4. Now, David, you said to me before this car caused you probably the biggest headache on the film, probably for Michael too. Or the, as Michael said, you say just baking on, on, on this one. Just tell us what happened with this car when you were in Italy. Okay, it was the worst night of my life, more <laughs> or less, filming. Uh, the car was meant to be picked up by one of these diggers and thrown over a cliff. And somewhere halfway down the cliff, it was supposed to explode. Unfortunately, it exploded before it went over the cliff and it blew up. And we're now in Aosta, needing quickly a, another DB4 convertible. Not the easiest thing to find in those days. Uh, I went, drove down into Turin and Milan and drove around all night and they're just impossible to find one. Uh, somehow, through one of the, somebody in the production office in Italy, we found a Lancia, a Lancia Aurelia 3C, which happened to be silver with a black roof, vaguely looked like an Aston Martin. Uh, I drove it back to the set for the next morning. We hadn't had any sleep whatsoever. Uh, the mechanics sort of fabloned one of the headlights and sprayed it with silver paint. And that car was then rigged up with the explosives. And that is the car that's thrown down the cliff. <laughs> and the, the one that was used in the London scenes is still around, isn't it? Because you've driven the car. Uh, well, yes, because I was buying these cars all under a thousand pounds, you know, 500 pound E-type Jags and 700 pound Aston Martins. <laughs> and uh, just five years ago, I went to the Villa Dest to drive the same car, which is now valued at 700,000 euros uh, in a concourse thing that they've built it all up again. That's incredible. It's, it's, as you said, it looks better now than uh, when it was in the movie. Well, it's come back to haunt me. <laughs> I, I threw it off a cliff and forgot about it, and it came back. You know. and, and one of the other cars that we, we, we should mention is the red E-Type 848 Cry. Now, in the room, we've got the owner of that car. Um, where's, where's Philip Porter um, waving his hand? Can we get a mic to Philip, please? It's coming down there. So... There's an interesting story which Philip's going to tell us because, um, you know, as David said, these were junkers when, they, when you bought these cars. They weren't yes. ever supposed to really survive, were they? So the no, idea they... that three of these cars from the film, the Mura, the DB4 and the E-Type, is quite incredible. They're still with us. It is incredible. They were meant to be thrown away, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Philip, do you have the mic? I do. So, Philip, I wonder if you could tell us the, the wonderful story of your car. Well, it's kind of you to ask, Matt. Uh, it's a car I bought um, in uh, 42 years ago, 1977. I knew that it was a very early car. It was the 12th Roadster made. I knew no more, but I soon discovered that, in fact, it, the first owner was a gentleman called Robin Sturgis. His, his dealership, uh, Jaguarlander ever still today, uh, dealership, Sturgis of Leicester. And he raced it. Um, it was the demonstrators during the week. And it was his racer at the weekend, which is a rather extraordinary concept when you think about that in this day and age. And anyway, I spoke to him sometime after I'd bought it in the late 70s. And whilst we were chatting about his, his racing experiences, uh, he said, did you know the car was in the film 
the Italian job? And I said, no, I had absolutely no idea. And he said, well, I was watching it on television last weekend. I recognised the registration number, and that's the car. And now, and now she's looking wonderful, isn't she, Philip? Well, it was pretty rough condition uh, when I acquired it for, I think, about £500. Um, and uh, yes, we carried out a full restoration uh, around about, I think it was about 1990. And uh, it's now uh, reasonably pristine, uh, but we certainly use it. And uh, it's going to be very busy this year. It's already been London Classic Car Show. It's been invited by Goodwood to Revival and all sorts of other events. Thank you very much, Philip. Um, now, while we're on that scene, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of taking a shorthand here because I, I, I'm under the impression all of you know the film quite well. Um, that scene where the cars are, are wrecked by the, uh, by the bulldozer on the, uh, on the hillside there um, also featured all of these mafia men in the, in the background. Now, Hazel, you've got quite an interesting story about this particular scene, haven't you? Well, I don't know if it's interesting. I should think it'll make Michael slip curl. We had a wonderful man called Disney Jones, who was doing all the sets, etc., for us. And Disney was gorgeous, but very, very gay. And uh, he was sent off to um, get an amount of mafia, tough mafia men, so that they could line the hill and be menacing when the set was ready to go. So morning came and they, everything was ready. And uh, as you know, if you know the movie, they kind of appear on the hill and uh, shoot, go, off we go, everything's happening, cue the Mafia men, and this group of gorgeous Italian men got up and stood on top of the hill. <laughs> anyway, we got away with it. <laughs> So we, we come to the real stars of the movie, the, the Mini Coopers. So, Michael, this is probably the biggest advert or commercial for any car anywhere. They were going to be the star of a Paramount movie. So surely when you went to see BMC, the British Motor Corporation, they couldn't wait to see you once they'd read the script. Surely they were going to help you in any way possible. Of course. There was no question at all about it. Um, they finally did come through with their very best offer, and I accepted it, which was to sell us two minis at trade price. <laughs> now, it, it, the company no longer exists and the people who made that decision certainly no longer exist. But it is a bit strange, isn't it? The, the picture was going to be shown in America, going to be shown everywhere else, also we thought. And um, that's the best we got out of them. We, uh, he bought a lot of used minis, which mostly were tarted up to look quite good. Now, before... Um you, you, when you, obviously you went ahead with this offer, but you were working with uh, Gianni Agnelli, who was the head of Fiat, because when you moved the film to Turin, he was very helpful in helping you get the movie shot there with the traffic jams, etc. Tell us the offer he gave you. Oh, his offer was very generous. He said, any Fiat car you want, as long as you don't use the minis, you can use Fiat's. Um, I can give you whichever class of movie, presumably it would have been a Topolino, but who knows what it would have been. Um, and don't worry about anything that gets wrong with them. You've got everything. Mechanics, stunt drivers. Everything. And um, 
also he will, he did give us a very strong um, introduction to the police, who treated us uh, as as wonderfully as we possibly could hope to because of his power. And um, he then said the second thing he said was, um, "I will give you a Ferrari, a latest Ferrari." <laughs> and then he said. It wasn't quite this bald, but this is the way it sort of slithered in. Um, I also would give you $50,000 to help spend on the movie or, or whatever you decide to do. Um, and all of this was wonderful and totally irresistible if it hadn't been for the fact that we couldn't do it because it had to be our British lads against the Italians and our British lads were going to be driving minis. So naturally that happened. So I've never actually driven a Ferrari yet. <laughs> so, it's because of, <laughs> so it's because of you, Michael. You're, you're sacrificing your Ferrari that we got the minis in the film. I think that deserves a round of applause. Oh. Uh, <laughs> now, once you, you, you got the cars, David, they were over to you. Um, tell us about the prep work that you had to do to them. Because you, you collected them from BMC. You had two sets. Two red, two white, two blue. Yes, yes. Tell us about what you then had to do with them. They, they were totally standard cars of the old model at the time, because they were bought cheaply, as we know. <laughs> and uh, we decided to paint them red, blue and white, all one colour, because they came in two-tone. And then Remy Julien, who's the stuntman on the, on the movie, came over from France, looked at the cars, and told me what he wanted on the inside. And everything was stripped out of the inside. We put on these big sump guards underneath, and we put the mini, mini light wheels on. We did all that. And the Disley Jones, who you mentioned, decided that the cars weren't butch enough. So they had to have leather straps on the bonnet. So if you wonder what that's all about, I'm still wondering. <laughs> uh, you know, after 50 years. But, um, but it caused you a bit of a headache. Tell us about making them. Well, then, because it was very late in the day that he decided this, I had to go to a friend of mine who had a leather shop. We stayed up all night making these things, punching holes in bits of leather and putting buckles on them. Uh, a little shop in, um, what's it called? West, West End Lane. So we did that, and, and that's how the leather straps were made. And of course, everybody's, the, we've got some wonderful um, uh, replicas which are driving around, which of course, you know, have replicated those, those bonnet straps, because they're not something you could buy, are they? No, we, they were handmade, literally, <laughs> by me. <laughs> what about this scene here, Dave, when you drove them across the water? I mean, what sort of headaches did that give you? Uh, well, mainly the usual mini thing is that um, they're going to stop. <laughs> um, so a lot of waterproofing, plastic bags around the you know, distributors, all that kind of thing, uh, was done to enable them not to stop in the middle of the river, basically. Well, then we come to Remy Julien, whose, um, whose stunt team were responsible for almost designing the car chase, bringing what Troy had put on, on the page and trying to embellish it even further. In fact, it's, Troy Kennedy Martin says that, you know, in a way, this is Remy Julien's movie. You know, he, it, was, it was him that, you know, that magic that he could bring to it that made the Italian job, you know, the film that we, that we want to talk about today. Michael, if I may, how did you come across Remy? And what did, he re what did you think he really brought to the film? Oh, he, he brought a, a very creative aspect, 
um, a lot of the things which were done were suggested by him um, because a chase is a chase, but if, you get, if you've got a man like that working, then you're going to be chasing in a very distinctive manner. Uh, and that's what he did. He, he came up with it. He had the attempt to do the 100-way turn uh, um, in, the in, sewer. The, in the sewer pipe, which he couldn't do. Um, after a couple of them fell on their heads, he recognized that he couldn't do it, but he did everything else. And the jump, of course, was totally rehearsed. We're going to come to the jump in a, in a second, Michael. David, what did you think of Remy Julien? Because, you know, you, you, as you said, you, you'd had a bit of experience doing stunt driving, but what did you think when this guy turned up? Well, I'd had the experience of normal British stuntmen who you could ask to do anything, and as long as you gave them enough money, they would get in the car. If I said, drive through that wall there, as long as the price was right, they'd get in the car and drive through that wall, whatever the consequence was. Remy's came in a totally different direction. Everything was scientifically worked out, calculated, practiced. It was something I'd never seen. And so it was a great education for me at the time. Well, we come to, well, to one of the, the biggest uh, stunts in the film that we all know when the three minis jump from one rooftop to another. You said it was all scientifically worked out. And I'm sure it was, and Remy convinced you to do it. But Michael, this particular stunt, were you worried about it? Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, I was worried. Um, uh, I didn't want to see anybody not get to the other side and smash themselves into the wall. Um, but more to the point, perhaps more selfishly, I was worried about what would happen to me. Because I was responsible as the... As the Part of the thing, um, and I've been told that the police would re regard me as totally responsible for anything that happened because these were my employees, and um, I, I had to, had two possible solutions. One was to sit there and pray, and the other was to hire a plane, which was standing by in Turin <laughs> Airport, and the moment one of those poor fellows' foot slipped off the clutch or whatever did it, before it hit the ground, I was off. <laughs> because it's, 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 uh, it wasn't something I wanted to do, but just, I preferred it to the thought of being in Italian jail for the next couple of years. <laughs> um, Hazel, Hazel and David, tell us what it was like to watch that. Because um, we've seen some great photos of Peter, um, who you know, said to, to Remy Julien, you know, if you make it, then I'll be standing on the other side with a bottle of champagne. But you are. It's, it's yeah. you are. So tell his, us his contribution. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so tell us your memories of it. Well, there were quite a few of us sitting in a cafe looking at where they were going to jump from quite a good way away. And the interesting thing, and I did talk to Remy afterwards, one of the things they did, the drivers, was to literally empty their bladders against a wall before they get up to do the jump. And afterwards, when I asked him why, he said, oh, well, you always do that before any stunt, because if you do smash and the bladder bursts, then you don't stand a chance because you're poisoned right through. But watching it was actually terrifying <laughs> because the first one went and you heaved a high, you know, sigh relief. Then there was another one, and then there was a third. So you had three moments when your heart stopped, totally yeah. 
stopped hoping to God they'd make the other roof. I don't know how they did it. I know it was rehearsed and it was down to a tea, but it was terrifying to watch. And somehow or other, although it looks great on screen, but none of the audience would feel the fear that we had in us watching them actually do it. And what about you, Dave? Were you, were you there when it was done? Yes, and uh, Remy told me that it had to be exactly a certain revs in a certain gear. It was all calculated. They had to all go simultaneously. It wasn't actually one after the other. <laughs> they, they went together in, in a pattern form, you know. And uh, I think even they were a little worried because of what could happen. Yeah, but it, it yeah. was amazing to see it. It was just yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, this particular moment here is the deleted scene, the famous deleted scene. I don't know if any yes. of you have seen it on the DVD or Blu-ray, but this was a whole sequence that was, that was shot. David, um, can you tell us about this, this scene, the deleted uh, scene from the movie? Yes, we had a full concert orchestra somewhere that's not in the picture playing music, and they were on an ice rink, and they did virtually a dance with the minis. They did this wonderful chore choreographed movement, and it's a very beautiful scene, but it didn't have a lot of relevance to the movie. Because you say, Michael, why did you, why did you decide to cut this scene from the movie? It was very beautiful, but in the movie, it was just a pretty face. It was um, irrelevant. They were chasing, they were escaping. They weren't fooling around in an ice rink. Yeah, slowed the film down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, there you are, David, with, with Michael Caine in the passenger seat. What was it like? Because effectively, you went to Turin and chauffeured Michael Caine around for the summer, didn't you? I mean, you, you spent a lot of time sitting in the, in the red mini with him. Tell us your memories of that. Well, we had a, quite a bit of time in the mini with him, but a lot more time having fun in Turin, <laughs> being 20 years old, you know. <laughs> Running around. Tell us, tell, tell, tell us about the the uh, the cars that you had while you were there, because there was how many of you? A gang of ten okay. of you, weren't there? You're all you're all 20, 25 years old. Yes, we're all young lads suddenly on expenses which we'd never had in our lives before. Lots of money to do whatever we wanted, and we were offered very cheaply Fiat 500s to rent. So rather than renting one for four or five of us, we all rented one each. We had 10 of these little Fiat 500s for a 1,000 lira a day. It was ridiculous. And so we thought it would be good fun just to drive around like a train everywhere. Um, we were going round roundabouts, stopping people getting on the roundabouts. We were stopping at lights and pushing the front car forward and all that kind of thing. And we were having a ball with these cars until my friend Barry Cox, who now is unfortunately dead, when we went to the production office to claim our £35 living allowance, he decided he had to win and he had to be first. And he'd come from about three cars back and unfortunately couldn't stop. And he crashed into a big Fiat 130, a brand new sparkling 130. And when we went into the office to get our 35 quid, the man who owned the car that he'd smashed into also owned all our Fiat 500s. And he had come to complain about the antics. We were already well known in Turin. And that was the end of the Fiat 500s. That was it, you know. So here we are with the, the sewer sequence. Now, you didn't film this, did you, Michael, in, in Italy? You filmed this back in, in England. A nice hygienic uh, new sewer 
in Co near Coventry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now we you bre briefly mentioned what Remy wanted to do with it, but um, David, you were you were, well, you were was, driving the car. Tell no, us. I was in front of that car in a mini moke with the camera. So uh, Remy did it several times. It was very slippery, even though it's supposed to be new. Yeah. And every time he got near the top, the car would just land on its roof and slide along, and then we'd have to go in, turn the car over, and start again. And they, it was a very simple thing. The circumference was not big enough of the tunnel. Had it been a larger tunnel, he could have done it. Yeah. But there just wasn't enough G-force to hold the car around the, around the thing. You, 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 you had the two sets. The, 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 the two red, two white, two blue yes. Euro cars. You had obviously multiple minis for chucking down the mountain, the stuff, the minis you used for the Crystal Palace scene earlier yes. on in the picture. But tell us, how much work did you have to do on the cars throughout production to keep them going? Because you put, if you say for the whole sequence, effectively you only used those two sets of cars. Yeah, but we had mechanics, full team of mechanics on them all the time. You know, every, every day they would be looked at and done and, and kept together kind of thing. That's, in that shot, you can see the extra lights, which is a bit of a giveaway because it was so dark down in that tunnel, which aren't in any of the other shots. They're sun guns, those three lights on the bottom. Look. See that? Yeah, on the front there. Yeah. So... We all remember this scene, don't we? The, uh, the, the finale of the, the car chase as the, as the minis go hurtling into the back of the, the coach there. Hazel, that, can you tell us who is in this picture at the front here, waving these minis in? Oh, that's Peter waving the minis in. He had about an inch, but nobody else would do it. So he decided he'd do it. And I must say, um, we had a very, very cross producer when he found out what he'd done. <laughs> Insurance. Yeah. So um, he was a bit like that, Peter. He liked he liked risk, and that was risky because if they'd missed one inch, he was smashed. I mean, it was a, it was a, a hair raising stunt. I mean, they, yeah, it, you can uh, see how little. And uh, see the two ramps. And if I could have the the roaming light, because David Wynne Jones again, I'd like to bring you back in, if I may, because you were. You were involved in the scene, you were, you were shooting on this, so if I just wait for the mic to come, if you tell us your memories of, of shooting this. This was being covered by a helicopter, and, but I had a camera inside, right, and, the, and virtually that still is taken from the position I was in. And you, you, you know, describe what it was like, because, you know, <laughs> you, you said was... where, you, you were, where, you were, where you were sitting, tell us about that, what, what it was like when they were coming in at you. In those days, I actually had quite a lot of nerve. It didn't worry me. But um, I was a bit scared, yes. <laughs> a piece that, no, that'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, um, you, you talk in the, in the book, David, about, you know, you had, you'd have an accident on the film. I wondered if you could, you know, talk to us about that. I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, you went on to this amazing career. David went on to, um, to um, become a very successful um, uh, career in commercials, um, mostly shooting food, wasn't it, David? That you, yes. Um, but this was very early on in your career. I wondered if you, if you would mind sh sharing your story with us. Well, I'd worked with Peter before. I'd worked with him on the film before, which was Long Days Dying, and I'd also worked with him. I didn't do the whole film on a film called Penthouse, which was... And um, we got on very well. He sort of, I was very young, and he was sort of took me under his wing in a way, really. But I don't know if he got me on the film, but uh, I suddenly had a call from somebody to go on to the film. 
and um, Peter was always, I like Peter, um, but you described earlier on, you know, Peter was determined to get something. And uh, my accident really happened. Uh, it wasn't Peter's fault. Um, because the chauffeur, Peter's chauffeur, had been put into the, into the police car. And um, because the stuntman had refused to do the shot, because it was too dangerous, too many people hanging around. And then you, you were at hospital for a year, weren't you, recovering after the, the accident? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you made a, wonderfully made a full recovery. So I think that deserves a round of applause, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's the helicopter there. Yeah, and as David said, there's the helicopter um, covering, covering the, the sequence as they, as they come onto the motorway. That was filmed on a disused piece, a brand new piece of motorway, wasn't it? It was being built. It wasn't actually open yet. Yeah. You were very lucky, Michael, finding these locations, weren't you, to, to, to serve the film. You mentioned briefly about Gianni Agnelli and how he helped the film. Tell us a bit more about those traffic jam sequences. How did you manage to put those together? Well, we had a lot of unit trucks, like the makeup truck, the wardrobe truck, and we closed off entrances gradually around the square so people actually couldn't get out. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is what we did. Um, and it is astonishing. I mean, there is a, a great thing about shooting films that's going to clutter up the streets and how it drives people crazy. And I don't blame them. But one of the rules is never go to a city where something like that ha happened because you won't get a chance to shoot anything. You must go to a virgin city. <laughs> and Milan wasn't, but Turin was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and the connection, and it, it was just wicked. What, was, what were your <laughs> memories of... Sorry, Michael. I was just saying, um, Hazel, what are your memories of the, filming the traffic jam scenes, these, these, these uh, scenes that Michael had, uh, and Peter had created by blocking off the, the entrances, so causing real traffic jams? Well, can you imagine Italians when they get hysterical? <laughs> I mean, think of them when they're normal, but hysterical. They were hysterical. A little bit like people get now when they're jammed on the M25. <laughs> but, I mean, it was chaos, absolute chaos. But because of the way all the cameras were fixed and shot, shot, it was just magic. It was just magic to watch, yeah. absolute magic. Yeah. But um, we were very lucky that nobody got into trouble, Michael. Yeah. We really well, were. Well, the were there. Yes, oh, yes. And they were very understanding. They were on your side, definitely. <laughs> First time that's ever happened. <laughs> I'm the last. Yes. <laughs> now, the ending of the film, we all remember the ending. Now, I'm not spoiling it for anybody, am I? Everyone's seen the film in this room. Because <laughs> that would be terrible if you haven't. Um, so, Michael, tell us about the ending, because you worked on this for, for a little while, didn't you? Trying to get it right. Um, and uh, tell us about how the ending came about. Well, it was very difficult, because Tro uh, Troy had come up with a very straight ending which but we hadn't quite made the movie that wanted that ending and it's a pity but it it didn't do and he, he struggled away with the thing and uh, eventually we had three endings and my job was to go to Hollywood talk to Paramount Bob Evans who was a very very good studio boss and um, ask them which one they want and it would have uh, meant a little bit of different shooting but still it was okay but on the way um, on the plane literally I thought and I did 
miraculously come up with an ending, a cliffhanger ending. And the trick here was rather good if they would buy it, because we would then make a sequel, which was very happy making, um, <laughs> if the film was successful, of course. And um, uh, I had to also, when I pitched it, I had to say, OK, but this is how the new film will open. In other words, this is how they'll escape. After he says, no, the wrong person. I've um, got a good idea. Uh, yeah, hang on a moment, lads. I've got a great idea. Um, and the music comes in and uh, goes away. Um, just after that, there would have been a sort of grinding sound. And the back of the vehicle, the, the bus, would be lifted up slowly. And uh, just as things were about to tumble out, you cut outside. And you see two helicopters with a cable underneath, pulling it up, and out tumble the, the, the gold and the boys, and there's the mafia all waiting, and it's their helicopters. That's how the second one was going to start. And the rest you were going to leave to Troy. Yeah. <laughs> the rest was up to Troy. <laughs> um, but we never got that far. Now, David, this, this scene here, this was filmed on the very last day of production, wasn't it? It happened to be the last day of shooting in Twickenham Studios, inside this bus, which is not moving. It's static, OK? Peter shot it several times and was getting more and more frustrated with us all. So he decided to put a case of beer in the coach, and everybody started drinking and getting drunk. And after about 50 takes, with everyone just falling all over the place, he got what he wanted. And that was the end of the film. You know. Now, the minis, David, what happened to them afterwards? Because one of the great things that, that we have been able to do in this book, which for 50 years everyone's always asked, what were, the, what were the, 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 the identities of the minis that were used in the film? And we've never been able to share that information because we didn't have it, because uh, BMC um, didn't have um, in the, the, uh, the records, nobody on the production kept the records, and of course, the number plates you see here, they have to match, you know, from yes. hero car to hero car, they're prop number plates. So we didn't know the identities of the real cars. We do um, reveal the numbers in the book, so okay. maybe we're going to start a barn find, I don't know, maybe we might find that, you know, one of these minis survived. But tell us what your memories were about what happened afterwards. People over the years have come to me, oh, we've got this mini, we've got that mini. But uh, frankly, I'm pretty sure after the jumps, after we'd, what we'd done to them, they were in such bad condition, the actual, the, the bodies had kinked in the middle like that. There were little, hot, little dents in either side of the roof. I'm 99% sure they were destroyed by BMC. You did get the minis back to London, though, didn't you? Tell us that story, because they, they didn't come back on a transporter, did no, they? No, we drove, we drove everything everywhere. There were no <laughs> transporters, you know. Um, in fact, the three drivers who are in the film drove the minis back. Okay. And uh, we had various adventures on the way back, which I won't say while Michael's here, but I will tell no, you. You are going to tell us the story. <laughs> uh, oh, dear, being run off the road by citrons, all sorts of things. But um, basically, when we finally got back, it was a nice sunny Saturday afternoon, and we all went to our own homes in these minis. And Barry Cox, who was driving the white mini, got done for speeding in Chigwell High Street. <laughs> uh, this is after coming all the way from Turin. Unfortunately, when they opened the boot, it was full of gold bars. <laughs> and they, they carted him off. 
<laughs> I had to go and get him out. And that was from the police station. Yeah, from the police station, yeah. No. yeah. It was one of the many. But, but, but tell, us, tell us the race to the border, because that story which you tell in the book is always a lovely one. <laughs> with, with the citrus? Yes. Okay. We, we were dri driving, as one does, basically as fast as they would go, which is only about 90. And one of these annoying big Citroen DS21s was getting in our way. And every time we went to overtake him, he went faster, and we couldn't overtake this guy. So eventually we had enough, and we actually ran him off the road. <laughs> um, and uh, it was what we didn't realise, it was only about two miles before the Swiss border. So off we went, and we get to the border, and we're going through all the things, and I can see in the rear view mirror this Citroen with all his lights flashing, coming up very fast behind us. I'm sure he was, a, you know, he was French or Swiss or something. I'm sure he was, and somehow we got through the thing, and we, were, we shot off. That was the last we saw of him. So your adventures behind the scenes were actually more exciting than actually making the movie? Sometimes, yes. So, Hazel, there's a picture of you with Peter. Now, you had a cameo role in the movie, didn't you? I wondered if you could share that story with us. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, my eldest son, Tara, was six months old, and we were in a little villa just outside Turin. And um, I was there looking after him, and a car drove up very fast, and a driver got out and said, your husband needs you on set. Get into something glamorous. And I thought, oh, wow, this is it. So I got into something glamorous, and he drove me very quickly to the set. And I was made up, and the hair was done, and I was all glamorized, and I was on the set, and Peter was there, and he said to me, thank God you've come. And I thought, oh, isn't that lovely? <laughs> and he said, it's a dinner party scene with the mafia, and they keep sending me these tall, dark, elegant Italian women, and I want a blonde scrubber. <laughs> but you did get to do the scene with Raph. Oh, you? I'm not proud. <laughs> so, Michael, the film came out on June 5th, 1969, and it you know, it's, well, it's fantastic we're all sitting here tonight and we're talking about it now because it is, as, as um, the gentleman said in the introduction, it's been voted Britain's favourite film. But when it came out, it didn't quite happen, did it? Tell us about... We've got the poster on the, on the screen here. Tell us about y your theory when you saw this poster. Well, this was the American release picture and it suffered from a few weaknesses. <laughs> One, uh, the teacup was to indicate that he was British... The machine gun was to indicate that it was an action movie, and the half-clothed Japanese lady was a bonus, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is that um, the gun was the killer, because that weekend it opened, it was the Kent State um, College, was the um, massacre of the students uh, by police, uh, uh, complaining students, very heavily, um, badly treated. And... Everybody in America was very upset by that, particularly young people who would go and see the movie. And the gun was a killer for us, for the movie. And that's one theory, and the other theories I don't know at all. That's the only theory I know. Well, yeah, yeah. We, we, we said, you know... The poster did it. It can happen. And also, you, 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 know, you say in your introduction to the book that it, you know, it, the, the film wasn't really about America. 
<laughs> no, it was nothing to do with America. We, we've pushed in an American girl because, after all, why not? But um, it didn't have any benefit at all. Now, now, Hazel, as you said, Peter, unfortunately did not see the film um, become this huge mm. cult success. He went on to make a studio film every year until, until his death in 1980. What did the Italian job mean to him? I don't think he had any idea it was going to be the success it was. He enjoyed making it, and I think he had a wonderful time making it, because I don't know what it was. It was like a family. The cast were like a family. Crowds of us used to go out every night to an Italian restaurant and eat, and that's normally not what stars do. They disappear. But Michael always came out. They all came out. There was a lovely feeling of youth and happiness about the movie. And everybody enjoyed it thoroughly, making it. And I think he just looked back on it as having a darn good time. He really did, but he had no idea it was going to go anywhere like it did. Well, what do you think he would have thought of events like this, where you know, we've got 300 people coming to celebrate the movie 50 years later? What would he have made of all of this? <laughs> I think he would have been delighted, absolutely delighted. And perhaps Michael and himself would have gotten on a little better than they did during the movie. <laughs> so I, I, on that stage, I just want to open it up to, to you guys, really. I mean, I want to give you the opportunity to ask this incredible panel some, some questions. We've got some mics going um, around. So if you'd like to ask a question, if you'd like to put your hand in, in the air, and we'll try and get a, a microphone to you. OK, so what was the budget allocated by Paramount to the film? The, the budget. The budget. The budget, Michael. Was it? Was it? A, was it? Um, did you, and did you blow the budget, or did you? Yeah. Um, the budget was three and a quarter million dollars, which was a good budget. Um, it seems amazing now uh, that you could make a picture for that this sort of much of a picture for that sort of money, but that's what happened, and it was very efficiently run and directed and neatly put together. It. it it was all right for the money. Okay, thank you. Good evening. Um, there's always one scene that's always confused me in the film. Um, when you're filming in Crystal Palace, practically when the minis, where you've got a ramp and there's a, a wall at the end of the ramp. Just wonder what they were practising. David, do you want to answer that question? Because you were there. Uh, no, it's a good question. They were practising driving through walls. But, uh, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. But, I mean, what's interesting is while we're on the point of Crystal Palace is, that, is the minis you got for that scene, what you had to do to them. They were rough. They were cheap. They were like 50 quid jobs. You know? <laughs> and they were quickly tarted up. We had six for that one day shooting just to see what happened. You know? And uh, I think probably four of them got smashed. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was no relevance to the end car chase then? It was just... Not really. It was just you, they were supposed to be training the drivers, the chinless wonders, uh, to be these wonderful drivers. Like maybe they were meant to stop or something, I don't know, and they didn't stop. They smashed the wall. Thank you. you. Know, it Cheers. Was, it was a training session for the drivers. Peter said he wanted you to put on posh accents, didn't he? Because you've got posh accents in the film. He did. And we were called Chinless Ones, but I, you know, ruined my acting career because I was dubbed. <laughs> that, was, that was the end of it. You know. well, we have Tara Collinson back in the room now. Tara, whereabouts are you? Um, Tara, I just wonder if I could ask you a question, if I may. Let me just get the microphone to you. Because Indeed. when we um, interviewed you for the project, um, 
you know, you've come to love this movie, you and your, your, your brother Shane. Tell us about when you first saw it, because that's a, an interesting story in the book, about when you first saw it in South Africa. Oh, yeah, no, indeed. Um, oh, I'm quite old now, really. Uh, the days before video, certainly well before the internet or mobile phones, um, it turned out you could actually rent film in 35mm. So, you know, it came in various spools and you in South Africa and you could rent a projector, you could set it up in your front room and project it on a sheet against the wall. So we thought, fantastic, I haven't seen the film, I'd love to see it, let's set it up. So, there we are, sitting as a family, playing away, projecting against the wall. And I'd seen this a few times, actually, before we'd gone in life, but no one's watching the spool that's going on behind us. What we hadn't realised is we put a small spool on against a big reel. So it was winding into a much smaller spooled reel. <laughs> so unbeknown to us, it was building up, building up past, if you like, the, metal, the two metal sides of it. It was balancing there for quite a while until there was this almighty crash and, oh, I don't know, about 100 foot of 35mm <laughs> film sprung literally across the whole room engulfed the family. We must have spent at least two hours, almost longer than we'd spent watching the film, trying to wind it back in to be able to give it back. But it, but it sparked a love of, of Mini Coopers for you, didn't it, Tara? I did. Um, I, I have to say, um, I mean, I love the film for the film. Uh, you might think, well, yeah, it's got to be because your father made it as well, but not really. It, it's a fantastic film. Uh, what I love about it is, one... It has captured a moment in British history, which was the 60s. I, I, I think it's captured that so beautifully. I, I love watching it back now. The older I get, the more I enjoy watching it because it's really encapsulated a time really, really well and, and really shows what this country was about and what the feeling was at that time. Thank you very much, Tara. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, um, obviously Michael Caine was one of the, was the star of the film, but perhaps the other star was uh, Noel Coward. I wonder if you could tell us something about his role and how he uh, how he took to doing that uh, job. It, it doesn't seem a Noel Coward, Coward type of role, really. I'll, I'll, I'll let Hazel answer this question because you were there when he was filming in in the jail. Then you had a connection, didn't you, on, about the, the the scenes? I wonder if you could set that up for us. Yes. All the jail sequences were filmed in Kilmainham Jail in Dublin. And um, he was, I suppose you'd say, at the end of his career, wasn't he, Michael? And he did have difficulty remembering lines. He really did. And uh, he had his life partner with him, Graham. And so Graham got a little part, really, to help Noel through so he could prompt him in that. But he was such such a lovely man and um, when he'd be waiting to go on he and I used to do crossword puzzles and um, he was very bright it could be very acerbic some of the things he said really kind of skinned you alive <laughs> but um, I always remember soon after there was a musical made of Gone with the Wind and um, we all went to see it with Noel and Graham and um, Bonnie Langford played the little girl in it, and uh, she was a mass of curls. And of course, the pony comes on that Bonnie's supposed to fall off. And like any pony in pantomime or any other show, as soon as they come on the stage, the lights hit them and they crap. 
that's what they do. So it was a bad show. And we didn't quite know what to say because we knew we'd have to go backstage. So Noel said, leave it to me. So we went backstage to the director and met him. And we were all able to say that we had actually never seen anything like it before, which was quite <laughs> true. And then Noel said there was only two problems in it, and um, I can help you solve them. So the director very foolishly said, how? He said, well, he said, if you take the little girl and stuff her up the pony's ass." <laughs> <laughs> That was no. Uh, good evening. Wonderful presentation. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Troy's uh, brother-in-law. Uh, love everything he's ever written from Z Cars onwards. Uh, what I would be interested to know is how he came to write the script for the Italian job. I can't possibly... Well, I know one thing he told me was that his brother Ian... Uh -huh. had yes. written That's right. something like That's it, right. he, and he'd actually given it to Troy to finish off or something, Troy wasn't that it? it? From him. Yes, Troy bought it, very brotherly. From his brother. Troy bought it from him. And he and, made it work. And just made it work. He bought, effectively, the, the basic idea of um, a smash and grab, if you like, yeah. um, helped, affected by the, um, the traffic lights giving them an escape route. It was that sort of complicated thing. Um, which he turned into a, a, a very snappy yeah, fabulous action script. script. Mm. And, and in, we were, I, was, I was very lucky to interview Troy a number of times uh, before he passed away, and he did go into a lot of detail about, um, about the cars and the fact that you know, he always, always wrote it with the, with the minis in mind. And he'd had minis, um, and he knew how they handled, and he literally went, drove down to Italy in a mini when he was researching the, the, the idea. Um, and literally walked around Turin and, and planned that route out. Um, you know, a, a route that could actually work. Work, yeah. Um, and, you know, he, was a, he loved the car. I mean, he always said, that, you know, uh, um, the district nurse would drive one and a prince could drive one. You know, it, was, it really represented the new Britain. It really represented the time. And, Here it did. It and, did. you know, Troy really captured in that film, you know, the feeling of the time, you know, the energy. And as you said, the youth that was in the air. Yeah. And that yes. came across, I think, in, in, in Troy's writing. He was a lovely, lovely man. He was. Uh, thank you for a most enjoyable hour or so. Uh, it's been great. My question is, you haven't touched on the music. Oh. Um, where does Quincy fit into this? Where, where was the music made before the film or the film before the music? But, but that was, Michael, you've, I think that's a really question for you as the producer. Um, you know, just tell us about how, how, first of all, Quincy Jones became involved. Um, I think it was Peter's idea first. Um, that was it. Quincy was not, um, he's quite well known as a performer, but he was not very prosperous at that time. And he was grateful for the job. And looking back, my God, we were grateful. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Don Black, I think, um, worked very closely with him. And On the lyrics. The On lyrics, the lyrics yeah. yes. Yeah. Matt Monroe sang the And Matt thing. Monroe sang, sang the, thing. Yeah, the thing. But Quincy actually fell in love with the whole Cockney element. Yes. Um, which was surprising, um, which, of course, Michael would be doing all the time just to amuse him. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Um, and, Michael, you said that it really helped when you were in the cutting room and you were putting the film together, you said that the music really helped at the end of the film. Music made it. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it all was logical. 
but add that music and it's suddenly, well, you've seen the darn thing. It, it does come to life. And it's um, the Self-Preservation Society. Don't know what that's got to do with it, but it certainly worked. Certainly worked. And, and, and Hazel, you you um, knew Matt Monroe, didn't you? I mean, yes, you, yes. Tell us about that. Well, when he went in to do the recording with Quincy and the whole orchestra, um, I don't think they had told Matt that he was going to have to sing an Italian version. Of at the, the beginning, the yes, first, at the, the first beginning. Piece, yeah. And he didn't speak Italian, and Matt was lovely, but he wasn't very self-confident. He was, he was quiet, and he, was, he just couldn't cope. So I was at home, and they rang me up, and I literally said the Italian to Matt as he was writing it down phonetically so that he would have the right pronunciation. And um, I, I think he hadn't been aware that there was going to be an Italian version of I the song, so you know, because he, he does it so beautifully. His voice was beautiful. But that's how I got involved with, with the song. I think we've got time for one more question. Thank you for a lovely evening. It's been really good. Um, I've got two questions, actually. How did you convince DER to allow you to cover their sign-up at Sunbury? Oh, OK, well, that's for the, for the scene when uh, you... Uh, the computer yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that, as, you, as you, you guys know, that it was filmed in, uh, in, in Twickenham. There is an interesting story about that. I don't know the answer to that question about that. But um, the story that, that uh, um, Mr. John Aldred, the sound mixer, says in the book, and unfortunately I should just say that John was due to join us this evening but couldn't to, to, due to ill health. But we have his son, Brian. Whereabouts are you, Brian? OK, um, Brian's there. John says a great story in the book that in the evenings they, they rented those computers out to other companies. And what happened is, of course, the whole scene is, is you're supposed to see the lights go out in the building because Charlie Croker and his mob have cut the power to the building. But what they did is they actually cut the power to the computers and they lost an awful lot of that work that night. So they quickly scurried off into the night once they got the shot. <laughs> <laughs> and the second question was, how did you manage to get Benny Hill to come aboard with it? Called call his agent and asked him. <laughs> <laughs> now, now it is, this is um, you know, a fantastic evening tonight because this is somewhat of a reunion. Some of these guys, they haven't seen each other since 1969. So to have you know, Michael, David, Hazel, uh, John Morris, David Wynne-Jones here is absolutely fabulous to come here. This is not going to happen um, you know, again during this 50th anniversary. So um, it's a great honour to be having this reunion here at Brooklands. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.